Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. This is an interview about scale and cows. Many, many cows. How do we kickstart regeneration in desert circumstances? Many millions of hectares in agriculture land around the world have turned into deserts and many millions are about to with current agriculture practices. Quick lesson here, brittle environments with a rainy or wet and a dry season won't regenerate by themselves when you remove humans and animals. Temperate climates do, they turn into a jungle. And we have a lot of brittle environments around the world, unfortunately. Our current belief has that once a desert, always a desert, and there's no way to turn it around, regenerate it into abundance. But what if there was? What if there was a business case, and even more extreme, what if done at the right scale, in this case at least 150,000 acres in southern eastern California, how would that impact the local weather patterns? Would it bring back rains and create an exponentially abundant local ecosystem? All questions we ask ourselves today. If it's true that water vapor accounts for 60 to 70% of the greenhouse effect, while CO2 only accounts for 25, why do we rarely discuss it? Maybe we choose to ignore it because it means we literally need to revegetate the entire earth. Bring back the marshes, the mangroves, the perennial pastures with trees and regrow real forests that can bring back rain in strategic places. In short, bring back life, lots of plants, trees, animals back to many places on this earth. Natural climate engineering. It is time we take our role as keystone species super seriously. In this special water cycle series, we interview the dreamers and the doers who are using the latest technology to figure out where to intervene first. They're making or trying to make the investment and return calculations and plans. So what's missing? What's holding us back? Maybe we lack the imagination to back them and try regeneration at scale. We're thankful for the support of the Nest Family Office in order to make this series. The Nest is a family office dedicated to building a more resilient food system through supporting natural solutions and innovative technologies that change the way we produce food. You can find out more on the NestFO, that is nestfo.com. Welcome to a very special episode. It's the last one of the Water Cycle series, and I have with great pleasure welcome Roger Savory to this, I was going to say channel, but it's not a channel, to this podcast series. Um, we already started previously, I, I needed to hit record because there's so much to discuss, um, ranging from restoring, uh, restoring, fixing deserts, which is actually the website, I will put it down as well, to discussing the role of experts, uh, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here. And why is it so difficult to uh, restore large water cycles or get that mm, thinking across? So I'm very happy to have you here, Roger. We have a lot to discuss. So let's dive straight in. Welcome, Roger. Thank you. Thanks, Good. And I mean, you grew up in, let's say, holistic uh, thinking and acting from basically birth or almost. 
Uh, but still, that could have led to many other paths in your career. You could have run away and, and started an engineering consulting career or, or something else. What led you to, or back to, I don't know, maybe you did that actually as well. But what led you to soil and work on soil and make it your life's work? Um, Kun, you're right. I grew up with it through osmosis. Um, but I was lucky enough, I did have adventures. Uh, I did my soldiering. I did my university. I, I did adrenaline if, if there was something that was dangerous i did it i i've, I've had a lot of fun um i've got all the so, injuries so we're lucky that you're still here yeah yeah you really are i've um <laughs> i uh, i've uh, get me around a campfire and, and we've got long stories to tell but i made it and uh, after 20 years of having adventures um i realized now it's time for me to settle down and have a family um and then and uh, now with kids it just becomes abundantly uh, uh, clear that I am not here for myself. I am here to make a better world for my children and my grandchildren. Um, and so that's what drives me. I am currently living in Florida. I'm raising my boys, but I do have a rather large ranch in Zambia, um, in Africa, and I could be living a very comfortable life just taking care of myself. But uh, a friend of mine brought me back from Africa to America, and he said, the knowledge you've got is too important. No one will listen to you in Africa. You've got to be in America, and you've got to get this knowledge into the world and the people. And, and I'm, I, I'm grateful. Um, I was doing a big project at the Africa Center for Holistic Management at the time. It took me a year to wrap that project up. Um, and uh, and then once that was up and running, then I returned to the States and uh, um, there's an old saying, be careful what you wish for, for one day you shall receive it. Um, because, um, you know, I'm bald now, I think from batting my head against the wall. But, uh, you know, it's, it's too big a project, it's too important for the world and, uh, and I, I set myself a, a really high goal um you know there's that uh, book seven habits of highly effective people and one of the things is you write down what you want to achieve and if you've write, written it down then you'll work um you'll work your your life to try and achieve it um so i wrote down what my goal is I, and no don't bother asking me i've never told anyone what it is but um but it it it, it was a difficult to achieve goal in other words i gave myself a real challenge in life and and I've just steadily been working towards achieving that. And uh, and the view that that's now taking place is this fixed deserts feeding the future project that I've launched under the auspices of the uh, X Prize for the carbon sequestration. Um, and uh, and the small target area to begin with is on the, uh, what's that, the western shores of the Salton Sea in California as the worst piece of land most difficult place to start. If we can do it here, we can do it anywhere on the planet. Um, and let's prove to the world that we can turn the two thirds of the world's planets, uh, uh, deserts back into grasslands. Um, and how so did that come? Like, did you just start looking for like the worst and the worst and the worst place? Like, how did that project or, or that landscape, let's say, or that watershed come to come to you or come came on your radar? So um, I, um, you know, it, it's, it's really hard. Or is there like believe, a list of, of worst places that you just say, okay, that, that it's known out there that this is the, 
No, no, um, Kun, it's, you, you know, if I tell you that I'm 53 and I started on this project when I was 17, does that put it in perspective? I've really been studying and looking at this for a long, long, long time. Um, when I was in university, uh, I, uh, I, I did a lot of studying in university. I um, studied many fields and uh, um, I did geography, geology and satellite imagery, you know, amongst um, other fields of study. But when I was doing that, you know, I was uh, looking at, you know, the satellite imagery. I was looking at, uh, um, you know, the deserts of the world. I was studying them. I was studying weather patterns. And the uh, the area of the Salton Sea was, uh, it, it was important and I knew it was. The other area that was quite important was the Sinai Peninsula. Um, that's an important area. Um, we had and, these uh, on the over on, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, uh, so they're kind of uh, they're kind of um, uh, global levers uh, for a larger area of land, and uh, um, so the the Salton Sea, it's near ten or twenty million people, depending on how you count San Diego and Los Angeles. It's within two hours drive of that. It's on a. It's on two weather systems. It's on the trade winds and then the Baja, um, the the Baja um, uh, winds bringing moisture in from the ocean. Um, it's uh, it's sandwiched between two um, irrigated agricultural areas. Um, so to get feedstock to begin the process of biologically carpeting the desert to 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 begin the process of jump-starting the life cycle um, yeah so it's a low-hanging fruit but but I've also identified places in Nevada New Mexico Arizona Texas um, Utah which are sort of next on the list like if you show yeah. it here those should be not only easier because we've shown something that is hmm. Look, I'm, I'm calling it looks like magic. It's not, but like bringing back a, a desert or regenerating, which is not bringing back, but actually re regenerating something that um, that's so deep in our psyche of, of seeing something where there's hardly any life, and then regenerating that will make a lot of other things possible. Plus, they're probably slightly easier or, or not as difficult because you said I picked the worst and worst and worst just to show that it's possible um, in in the US. And, and just to describe it in this case for people, of course, I will put um, the websites below. Um, but if you had to describe it visually, because we're in, in an audio medium, um, when you say the when you say it in this case, the, the restoration or regeneration of that area, what what do we what do we have to imagine? What would be the work? You have to imagine um, temperatures. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking shade temperatures, I'm talking temperatures of 160 degrees. You have to imagine that's Fahrenheit, uh, uh, probably what, 50, 52, 53 centigrade. You know, it, you've, you've got to imagine really hot temperatures. You've got to imagine Chinook winds and really strong blowing winds. You've got to imagine um, a the Salton Sea drying up. I think I heard a figure that 30,000 acres of new land get created each year as the sea shrinks. Um, so we've all seen pictures of the sea in Russia that completely dried up till it was gone. Yeah, that's that's happening. Uh, you have to um, imagine only a three and a half inch rainfall. You have to imagine seven years where, yeah, they're lucky if they got, got any rain. 
um, and then you know the El Nino and La Nina years. Um, so, so uh, uh, you have to uh, imagine a mountain range that uh, either blocks um, either blocks uh, wind, um, uh, blocks precipitation across, or can be a great funnel and channel for moisture to come down into a valley. Um, but basically, not a very nice location. And then you have to imagine the dust from this desert blowing over into Los Angeles and San Diego um, and you know, causing heat issues in the cities and uh, asthma and human health issues. Um, and then you have to imagine all of that and just uh, look at the pollen records and realize, oh my God, once upon a time, not that long ago, there were mammoths and giant bison and beavers and willows and, and elm trees and all these other things. Um, and that was only 38,000 years ago. So it's a man-made desert. It's humans who created it. And it's such a moonscape now that you, you can't even wrap your head around that it ever had abundance of life. It looks so bad. And then what does the, if you had to just, of course, there's, there's way more to that, but how do you kickstart that? You mentioned the, the bio carpet before, like how do you, when it's so bad and so deep in, in the degenerated state, where do you even start um, with an intervention to, to kickstart something? Like what's the lever, what's the, the node in the system to, to start, uh, let's say, the, the process to the other, to swing to the other side, let's say, in terms of abundance? So that's, that's what it took me 20 odd years of research figuring out. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I came from a normal scientific background. I mean, one of my degrees is biology. Um, uh, and I studied desert field biology at the University of New Mexico in the desert. You know, I went and I studied at the long-term ecological research station down, where was it? Well, I want to say it was La Jolla, any, anyway, down in the south of New Mexico, um, where they'd been studying one study plot for 70 years. So by now it's 100 years. Um, and, uh, you know, the only thing that was doing well was, um, you know, some kind of rat. Um, other than that, there wasn't much, much life left. Um, so, uh, and all the academics were getting all excited about, oh, look, the cryptogramic soils are protecting the desert sands. I'm like, no, you idiots, this used to be a grassland. Don't get excited, you know, about, you know, the fact that it's about to become a blowing sand dune. Um, so, uh, yeah, but people get on groupthink and everyone huddles together and they all tell each other how smart they are. Um, and it's, you know, the, the obvious is staring you in the face. Um, and I think the obvious has stared humanity in the face for 10,000, 20,000, 200,000 years. You know, um, yeah, I think uh, all humans have, uh, have, have faced this. And when everything in your belief system and everything in your DNA's belief system and everything in your shared memory is that once desertification starts, there's no stopping it. And we always go from abundance to lack of resources to war over uh, lack of resources to desert sands to blowing, you know, uh, you know there's this trend and it's, it's happened you know, globally. And if it was a brittle environment, it's turned to pure desert. And if it was a non-brittle environment, once the humans have died off, the jungles have re re returned. So depending on what's happening in, with atmospheric moisture, if there's year-round atmospheric moisture, it returns to a jungle. If there's a wet season and a dry season, it turns to a desert. And most well, of sadly, the planet has a 
wet and dry season. That's also uh, not to be underestimated. Uh, yeah, most of the world, yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, and that was what we didn't understand as humans. We didn't understand that there was this vast difference. And if you look at all the big civilizations that collapsed, they all started in areas where there was abundance of grazing animals. We figured out how to funnel trap and, and kill them by the millions. That gave us so much excess protein food, which humans needed for survival. We've got two eyes in the front of our head and incisor of teeth, so we're an omnivore. So when we had this abundance of food, then we were able to kill, kill, kill. And that's our motto throughout history. Humans is kill, 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 kill. And, uh, and then when those animal numbers finally dropped to low enough numbers because we didn't understand how vital they were for a brittle environment, when they died out, then the grasslands died. When the grasslands died, well, now we'd built a big city based on the animals. So we had a huge human population to feed. But now the animals were no longer there because we'd over-harvested them. Once we over-harvested them, well, now we had to change as an omnivore. We're one of the few species that when we kill out our food source, we can change food sources. So then we had to change and we had to invent agriculture to feed ourselves grain, not knowing that then when we invented the plow and plowed the land, that was the final nail in the coffin because we didn't understand that soil was a living organism. And when we killed the soil by turning it over to plow to get more seeds in it, when we killed the soil, the microorganisms in the soil dying released the nitrogen in their bodies. And that gave us the, and you can see it, you can see the plants grow darker green, they're healthier. So that told us this was good, plow the soil, you get better crops. Not understanding that, no, we were killing the life in the soil that was releasing nitrogen that made the plants grow greener. Three years of doing that, the soil's finally dead. And that's why we had slash and burn agriculture as we killed soils, not understanding that soil was a living organism. So now coming back to the biological carpet, what I realized, um, and that wasn't that long ago, it was maybe seven years ago, um, what I realized when um, when being questioned was that, no, the enemy is ultraviolet light. And that is what we had never understood. And as soon as we can protect the sand the top millimeter of sand from ultraviolet light, then life can begin in the top millimeter. And we know from the electron microscopes and the DNA analysis of soils that, you know, they talk about a shovel load of soil having over a trillion life forms in it. But what we now know is that the life forms that live in the top millimeter only live in the top millimeter. The ones that live in the second millimeter only live there. Third millimeter only live there. Well, if you take a plow and turn soil over, the ones That's from the, the top end. are now 10 inches down, and the ones from 10 inches down are now up on the top, and they all die. So now if we've got to now jumpstart the life cycle again, it's like, okay, how do we protect the microorganisms in the top millimeter from ultraviolet light? Because they're still there, even in like such harsh conditions no, that no, you describe. They're mostly, they're no, mostly not there, but we can jumpstart the life cycle. So remember, air is full of, um, uh, every time you breathe, I think you breathe in and out 50 or 60 um, fungal spores every breath you take. So the, the, the spores are there, the bacteria are there, but you know, it can be there. And then as soon as we have a biological carpet pr protecting 
that top millimeter from ultraviolet light, then life can at least begin. Now, what is the source of a lot of that life? It's the dung itself. So it's the dung from cattle that carry the life that can then start on that top millimeter protected by the dung itself. And then it can start, it's, you know, it can, can start. So remember some bacteria double every 10 minutes. So, you know, if we give them the moisture from the urine, the bacteria needs moisture to live. It's a single cell, uh, you know, um, amoeba, amoeba. So the, the bacteria need the moisture from the urine and the fungi need the protection from the sunlight. Um, and the bacteria need the protection from the sunlight. Remember to sterilize bottled water, everyone drinks bottled water in plastic bottles. The last thing in the bottling process is goes past two ultraviolet lights. We know we use ultraviolet light to sterilize stuff. Well, what would make you think it's any different in the desert? And so how do you, the question then becomes, how do you carpet a large area with manure? That's the, yeah. and of course, you don't want to bring it in with a truckload from a CAFO operation, I'm imagining. I'm making an assumption here, but, and look, how, how do you, but it has to be equally spread. How do you bring that the right amount, not too much, not too little, over a vast area? Because if you do that at a few square meters or even a few square kilometers, it's just not going to do it. You pay me a lot of money and I do it because that's what I've spent 20 years figuring out how to do it. But uh, in simple terms, it's a, you know, uh, excuse, I'm going to be full of shitty jokes now. It's a shitload of, of, of shit that has to go on the ground. Um, and um, if you figure one cow eats 12 and a half kgs of dry matter per day, so that 12 and a half kgs of dry matter that goes into the cow comes out the rear end at some point. Hence the point about your two production regions, like irrigated um, yes. agriculture regions, because you need this, you need to bring in the feed. At least you need to bring in the feed because there's you, no, you, yeah, nothing I mean, to eat. Cow, cow can't eat desert sand. So, so we need the cow to break up the crusting in the desert. Uh, we can talk about crusting later, but we need the cow to break up the crusting um and then to mix in the dung into the soil and then um and then we need a, a particular layer at the end in other words it doesn't do us any good to just mix it together with the cow's hooves we have to mix it together and get a layer and like you said it's got to be level so we also use chickens with the cattle because while they're scratching around looking for maggots they're also leveling it out and making it a good even even um even playing field, so to speak, um, and turning it into a carpet. And then, uh, and then it'll dry up. It'll dry like a solid vegetative carpet. It'll be like a layer of paper uh, or cardboard across the whole desert. Um, and uh, by my calculations, looking at how much dung is laid by per cow and you know, how fast we can move, basically in rough thumbsuck figures you need about 600,000 cattle to carpet 150,000 acres a year. So it's not, you know, when we're looking at 81 million acres in America alone, 150,000 acres is not very much per year, but for a herd of 600,000. But on average, your big cities of 10 million will consume that much beef. 
So if we've got a Houston or a LA or a Salt Lake City or an Albuquerque and Santa Fe, if we've got those populations, that figure of 600,000 cattle um, being used for biological carpeting and for feeding people, it kind of works. Um, and so, um, so and yeah, feed, we need... Like a, the, the quantities, I mean, the 12 and a half kg that will reduce over time, I'm imagining, but how much of a, a cost, but also a stress or, or a barrier is it that you have to bring in that amount of feed from not that far because you're moving quite a bit of water? Um, like what's yeah, the, it, what's the it's, feed It's question? really not. Um, yeah, there's a business model that everyone knows and understands. It's called a CAFO, Confined Animal Feeding Operation. Um, you know, Cactus Feeders in Texas has 500,000 cattle in their feedlots. Um, so this is something humans know how to do. We're very good at it. Grow feed, feed cows. The only difference is a CAFO, grow feed, feed cows in pens. We're grow Doesn't matter feed, what kind of cows. feed in this case? Like, is there... So, uh, yeah, it does. Um, so um, because I want the land that we grow the feed on to improve at the same time as the land that we fix... In other words, most CAFOs use a center pivot irrigator and grow a monoculture of corn. I've got a mix of about 120 different species of forage um, that, um, that we um, grow together. And when we feed that to livestock, um, we find the nutritional density of their meat is exponentially higher. They've done some recent studies on this high biodiversity um, uh, thing and, and the uh, omega-3, omega-6 ratios are just absolutely fantastic. So we can produce a far more nutrient-dense organic you know, uh, beef animal than the CAFOs are currently doing and heal the land that's growing the feed because in that 120 mix, I'll give you an example, one of them is, is, is beetroot. But the combine harvester is not pulling the beetroot out by the root. So after it's grown for, its let's say, 90 days, and then we come in and, and cut all these things, you know, in one cut, um, you know, with a silage cutter, the beetroot is left behind. Well, that huge root now has nothing to do but rot in the soil and feed the worms and the nematodes and, and the bacteria and everything. Whereas on your monoculture of corn um, or maize, you know, it's grow the corn, there's nothing in it. You know, now you've got rows of 12, 18 inches between the rows, it's bare soil. And current conventional agriculture, every, and I do mean every decision in current agriculture is about killing. It's kill, 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 and kill. I hate conventional agriculture. The mindset of a human is the mindset of a flea. Everything is about poison, kill, burn, pull out by the roots. You know, if you look at every robot that's in conventional agriculture, every decision is about how do we kill it. If it's a fungus, kill it. If it's a nematode, kill it. If it's an insect, kill it. If it's a bird, kill it. If it's a rabbit, kill it. If it's a deer, kill it. If it's an elephant, kill it. Kill. That is the only thing that happens in conventional agriculture. And then we wonder why we've got global human populations with 
health issues. We wonder why we've got biodiversity loss and extinction issues. We wonder why, you know, it, it's, it's like humans, are we that foolish? It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Everything in conventional agriculture, the only decision a human knows how to make well is how to kill something. So, you know, my thinking is, okay, how do we build soils? How do we keep things alive? How do we, you know, get the deserts, um, you know, growing again? And, and it's about abundance and, and regenerating life. And, but I'm no different than every other human. I am programmed for kill, kill, kill. I've done a lot of it in my life. But when you realize that what you're doing is wrong, that's the beginning of the journey to, okay, yeah, I used to do that, but now how can I do it differently? So, for example, on my ranch, I used to burn about four, 45 kilometers of um, fire breaks. Now I know that a single acre of fire kills about 6,000 animals. Well, it's really hard to burn a fire break once you have that image of 6,000 animals having a torturous, horrible last few moments on the planet. But you'll find everyone, oh, yeah, we've got to burn fire breaks. We've got to burn. We've got to kill. We've got to kill. No. There's other things we can do to stop fire without killing everything. Um, and that's just a silly, small example. But it, it makes the point we're just programmed for killing. And that's the biggest thing about regenerative agriculture and uh, you know, this project to fix the deserts and turn them back into functioning ecosystems is they were created because all our ancestors had that same philosophy, kill, kill, kill. That's why there's no mammoths. That's no, why there's no giant bison. That's, you know, that's why all these species are gone because all of our ancestors had the same DNA genetic code, kill. And that's what we've got to bring to an end. There are many places to go from here, but I want to throw in this one. So what makes it different now? What makes you, I'm not going to tell you that positive, etc. but what is different now that even if it's in our genetic code to kill, 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 that we can be that uh, positive keystone species or beneficial keystone species. I heard somebody say, like, what, what was that switch in you going from kill to, let's say, facilitate or support life? And how can we make sure that a, a good minority, at least, of us goes through that same transition? Okay, so uh, I've got two parts to this answer. If I, if I only answer one, please remind me to come back to the other part. Okay. So the first is, um, you know, we're um, evolutionary um, programmed for, um, we've got pioneers who go out, invade the new area, um, kill everything, cut down the forest, etc., etc. And if they survive, then the rest follow. Um, so we've got this instinctual, what I call instinctual fear mechanism. That's part of our DNA. So the the, the humans from this group, you know, we get overpopulated. So we send pioneers out to the new area, and oh, there's new foods. And well, if we try this mushroom, if we die, then whoops, he died. But if the pioneers try that new mushroom and they live, then the next generation will also, you know, 5% of them will try it and the next generation. So we've got basically an instinctual fear mechanism that's in our DNA 
We're 5% of the pioneers and the risk takers, and they will be the pioneers and the risk takers for three generations. If nothing goes wrong in the three generations, so we're talking 60 or 70 years, um, or up to, sorry, up to 90 years, um, but if, if, uh, if, if nothing goes wrong, then the rest of the 95% will say, oh, that mushroom's edible, we've always eaten it, and, and we act like we've always done that. But it took, uh, you know, and you can look at the research, whether it was uh, the, the doctor, I think it was Dr. Stamps figuring out that Lyme stopped scurvy. You know, it was 90 years before the, 70 or 90 years before the British Navy adopted a policy that every ship would have limes on board. And then it was another 60 or 70 years before the British Merchant Navy adopted the same policy. Um, you're a Dutch seafaring nation. How long did it take before the Dutch adopted the same policy? You know, so we're, we're always, we're, we're, a, we're a fear and a risk adverse species. So we have to have this long delay. So we, I'm now the second generation of regenerative or holistic management uh, thinkers. So I think about 60 years out, you know, um, we might actually have massive adoption. Um, so I'm not too worried about the fact that we're not getting much traction because I now understand that this is natural evolution. I just look at the, you know, look at the data on human population growth, environmental malfunction, and I worry that, hey, will we make it um, and get over this hurdle before it's too late? So that's the one thing. But the second thing is on this, I think it was the 6th of August, 1945, we had a brown, groundbreaking day, um, followed up by the 11th of August, 1945. You know what happened on those two days? I'm guessing something with nuclear. Yeah, two big nuclear bombs. Now, what we had always done was we had destroyed our habitat and our environment. Then we had gone conquered other people and taken over their land. And that has been human modus operandi for, I can find research going back 250,000 years that we've been doing this. Um, and so this is what we always did destroy our environment and our ecosystem, then go and conquer someone else and take over theirs because, ooh, stuff's still growing there. In 1945, for the first time in human history, how do you fight a nuclear bomb? How do you fight a hydrogen bomb? You can't fight it. So for the first time in human history, we had to now live within our boundaries. And there was no longer the option of going and having a war. We had these little skirmishes, what I call human population control skirmishes, whether it's in Iraq, Afghanistan, Rwanda. We go and kill a million people, and then we say, okay, that's enough people removed. Okay, we can be at peace now for another 50 years till we breed up again, then we'll go and kill another million people. Sadly, I think it's about to happen to the poor people in, uh, uh, in the uh, Israeli area. Um, but yeah, this is standard. We've done it for quite a few years. We have these little skirmishes, a million people get killed. Um, and then we say, okay, quits. And we say quits because we can't afford an atomic war or a hydrogen war. Um, because that, you know, I think America can blow the planet up five times. I think Russia can do as well. China can, you know, it, we can all blow up the planet. So for our very survival, we no longer have the option of going and taking someone else's land. 
Now we have to live within our means. So we're thinking now about we Mars to... and, and other places. Yeah. Well, what's the good of that? I mean, if, if you think about no, the work yet. I do in the deserts, um, you know, how, how are we going to get healthy soil in Mars? Which six trillion microorganisms are we going to take with us to start building that, yeah. soil? Which, you know, how are we going to do it? I mean, it's, it's a pipe dream. Um, um, yeah, it really is a pipe dream. Um, uh, there's so much complexity. And this is the thing. Humans keep trying to kill, kill, kill till they've got something simple. Um, not understanding the complexity. I mean, I was recently at a, a, at a, a, a conference in Vermont where the cellular lab food people, uh, and they've already been given $3 billion for their projects. And I was like, I couldn't believe the mass psychosis of humanity that these people are saying, oh, we'll grow cell, you know, cellular meat. And and I said, well, well, what's what's the source of you know in the in the in the petri dishes? How you you know what are what are the cells feeding on? Oh no, it's glucose. A growth medium. Yeah. So I said, oh, well, what's the source of glucose? Oh no, we'll just get it. No, 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 no. What's the source? You know, uh, well, um, sugar beets or sugar cane. Okay. So you're going to do massive monoculture agriculture, harvesting sunlight to get the glucose to glow your cell phone meat. Okay, now, how much glucose are you gonna put on your starships to ship to Mars um, to feed the cell meat? So I'm like, come on guys, stop being ridiculous. Yeah, you know, they, they can but see the cell meat, but they, they, won't, they won't take the mathematics yeah. backwards to, well, what's the source of the energy? Well, the energy came from sunlight through plants photosynthesis, creating sugars, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then, oh, how much petrochemical energy was needed to grow that monoculture? The tractors, the combines, the, you know, it's, it, you know, it's this mass psychosis yeah. that, oh, technology, everyone's praying at the feet of the God of technology. Technology will save us. I'm like, guys, I don't know what, what wacky tobacco you smoking, but it's not good. You know, you just cannot remove yourself from nature. And we keep thinking that we can. And I, I just, I'm like, uh, off you go, have fun. Uh, I'll make sure my family are safe, understand how nature works, and we'll be the ones who survive. You guys are not going to make it. But that's exactly a, a, a question that would I mean, you're saying, I'm not so worried, like in, in the next generation, it takes three generations to to accept something uh, and to survive through that. And, and that we all look like, okay, they're still fine. Let's, let's adapt this. Could we take that the other way and, and see, of course, there's been a 12,000 year or 10,000 or whatever the number is since we invented the plow and agriculture history, but there's also been a relatively recent, extremely industrialized, intensive, chemical driven, fossil fuel driven since more or less, uh, let's say the second world war. Like, are we still in time to, to call that experiment to say, like, we actually are not surviving that experiment. Let's not do that because maybe we are not at the 30, at the, at the three time, like the three generations of risk takers are, are now risking their lives on chemical poison farms. They probably are suffering. We see that in the numbers. Like, are we still in time to actually not call conventional the normal and actually say this was an experiment? It just let's let's not continue with this because it's not working out. Or is that sort of is that the same trend that 
happening because it seems to be crumbling in front of our eyes, basically, the, the extremely high input, extremely high industrialized fossil fuel driven agriculture sector. You know, we it, it, it is crumbling. I've been out of college nearly 30 years. When I was in college, we were studying it. And uh, we were studying how the soils are dying. And you know, we figured out that fertilizer was like cocaine, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and we could see the, the amount of fertilizer needed was going up exponentially and the yields were going down. And, and, and we, we could see all this. And that's 30 years ago. It's now just 30 years worse. Um, but, oh, but now we've got precision agriculture. Now we can do this. And, you know, uh, yeah, we keep trying to, uh, we keep digging the hole deeper in this belief that technology will save us. And, uh, and that's all we're doing. We're just digging the hole deeper and faster. Um, you know, since, and you're right, it's since the end of World War II. If you read the book Soils and Health by Sir Ernest Howard, um, you know, I think he wrote it in 1938 and he said, okay, we figured this out. We can make compost. We can increase soil fertility and human health and life's going to be great. And then we went into World War II. We came out of World War II with bunches of ammonia nitrate from the munitions. We needed to dump it, you know, so, hey, dump it on fields. Hey, look, you know, and, and what people didn't understand was it was the salt is killing the life. And when the salt kills the life, it releases the nitrogen. You know, so even that we misunderstood. Um, and then we had all these bulldozers left from here yeah, from military production. Oh, bulldozers! Well, that's a tractor. And then we had all these planes. Oh, well, that's you know spray crops. And then we had all these poisons, Cyclone B and stuff. Uh, oh, that that's great stuff. You know, so um, World War Two never ended. It just, just went moved from the fields. It just moved to the fields, and um, and you know we've got the cancer rates now. We've got the bare soil. We've got the blowing fields. We've got the the second dust bowl here in America. Uh, you know, I was recently in one of those dust storms, and uh, I mean, it was just it was it was scary, and it was like, oh my god, you know, how have we gone so wrong from the Soil Conservation Service of the '30s, where we got we started to get this under control. To we're back here again, um, and uh, yeah, uh, just a, uh, the 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 lemmings are running off the cliff, and um, and the the lemmings at the right at the back, the hesitant ones, will be the ones who don't go off the cliff. Um, that's 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 it. And so, looking at the Salton Sea, and and from like an investor point of view, or from an entrepreneurial point of view. You're saying we need about 600,000 uh, cattle to, to kickstart and for sure a lot, a lot of chickens as well. Like how small can you start? Of course, running on, let's say, the beef uh, selling and the beef prices, which is an interesting business model. If you do that well, there, there's, it can run on that. But how small can you make it before like being too small to have the outside effect on not only the macro, the micro uh, water cycle, which is happening under the dung or within the dung, but also the smaller water cycle. Like how, how big do you need to be before you're influencing um, literally weather patterns, which is, I think, when we get into yeah. this realm of people go, ooh, that sounds like magic. But that's exactly the conversation we need to have. Yeah, so um, my, I did my math, you know, uh, part of my training, uh, my grandfather was a civil engineer. When they're building a dam, they do the planning backwards. 
So if they want the dam ready on this date, then how long does the concrete take to set? Okay, come back to that date. How long does it take to make the form? Come back to that date. How long and they yeah, how long does it clear take clear the land? Come back and then they get a starting date from the ending date they want. Um, so I was trained in that uh, that methodology. Um, so and I looked at all the data of all the places in the world where we've increased rainfall. And there was a magic number. It's 150,000 acres. So my math is the 158,000 acres back to the 600,000 cattle because we have to change weather patterns. So that is the smallest we can start. However, to train humans, I can't start with 600,000 cattle in a desert. There will be a gong show. So I need to start with 5,000 acres and 5,000 cattle. When I've got my, my humans trained, then I can go up to 10,000 and 15,000 and 20,000 and 40,000 and 100,000 and 200. Do you see how it goes? It's not because of the environmental factors, it's because of the human factors. We've got to train the humans in, in a new way of doing things. And I actually find it interesting. I've read the Bible five times. I'm not religious, but I've read the Bible kind of as a historical document for me to understand deserts because they were living through it. Um, you know, Cain in the land of milk and honey, okay, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so um, when you read, there's, uh, I think it's the book of Numbers, um, uh, but they talk about all the, the 12 families of Judaism. And, you know, this guy had, I always found it funny, you know, if he had 144,000 cattle, they always had twice as many sheep and goats. So if he had 144,000 cattle, he had 280,000 sheep and goats. And they always had 16,000 donkeys. And I, I just laughed at that, that all the families had 16,000 donkeys. That must have been the number of donkeys you needed to move the whole family. But humans have had these large numbers before. I don't know why we're scared of them. You know, if guys 4,000 years ago could run these big herds, why can't we? Or were the 4,000-year uh, humans cleverer than us? Can technology not help us? Yeah, yeah, what do you so, see as the role so for technology in, in that? I mean, we, we bashed yeah, it a, a bit earlier on. Yeah, what, it, do you, what do you see there? Ear tags um, and walkover weighing scales. So when the animal gets up to the right weight for slaughter, it separates itself out of the massive herd and walks onto a truck to go for slaughter. Um, it just in, makes your life a lot easier. It just makes your life a lot easier. Yeah. How do you find the big ones that are ready? Or an animal that's sick goes through the scales and it's lost weight, pull it separate because you want to isolate it as quickly as possible. Now, it used to be the wolves that did that, but you want to do it from a management point of view, get it you know, treated so that it doesn't spread like wildfire through your herds. Um, so yeah, those kind of things, um, that's what we'd use technology. Because to be quite honest, we have very few cattlemen left, um, you know, on the planet who even know how to run big herds, and and so that's why I said, you know, training the people is is the is the delaying set. factor. But yeah, we want a minimum. Yeah, we want minimum herds of six hundred thousand. And uh, you know, one of your questions you were going to ask me was the magic wand and a billion dollars. Well, there's my billion dollars spent. Wasn't that odd? I and mean, that's just and one. What state. would the effect be? 
what would the effect be? Of course, difficult to to imagine even, but you talked about the the current state. It's difficult to imagine a worse place to be uh, in terms of temperature, wind, smell, just general lack of life. Let's say a sufficiently sized herd um, of, of 600,000 or more has been uh, quote unquote working or have been um, being their key species alive there. What would the effect be? And take us on a on a visual trip. So the visual trip is the first thing that goes down is the biological carpet. And there's a bit of dust while we put it down, but not too much because it's kind of a wet process. Dung is quite wet. So the leading edge has dust, um, and but immediately behind it, it's there's no more dust. Um, and I'm going to take you through a worst case scenario, a, a year where there's not much rain. So we have the dust, we lay the carpet down, we have the dust, we lay the carpet down, we have the dust, we lay the carpet down. And at the end of the year, on the big one, I'm not talking about the little 5,000 acre, you know, to start the learning process, but when we're up to 600,000 cattle. So so we get 150,000 acres covered. Now, uh, how big is Holland? That I would have to Google, let me see. <laughs> Live on the show, ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm. What would we do without our beloved Google? Ah, uh, cozy in this case, but yeah, it's uh, uh, it's forty-one thousand square kilometers. So yeah, in, we could do the whole of Holland. Sixteen thousand square miles. Sixteen thousand square miles. Yeah, but uh, forty-one thousand square. Yeah, so we could do the whole of Holland in three years. And then do you have to come back regularly? How does it work? No, it's a one-off. So, okay, so now let's say we've done so the... So the kickstart yeah, is and, the cattle and, then, and the chicken. So, and so, so, so the cattle and chickens have come across, and the whole time we're doing this, cattle are arriving every day, cattle are leaving every day. As in small ones are arriving, big ones are leaving off to the slaughter plant. That meat is nutrient-dense, organic, grass-finished, local beef. It's going over. It's going to the, the local meatworks at Brawley, um, and the, the meatworks are forty minutes away, so it's close. So it's going to the meatworks, and then an hour over the mountain into Los Angeles to the school system to feed our children nice, healthy protein instead of importing it from New Zealand or Tasmania or wherever it currently comes in from. Um, and um, and so so the biological carpet is there. It doesn't smell. Because it, you know, it 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 was it wasn't high enough concentrations of urea to build the smell, so it's kind of soaked in where it was. It's been churned in. Now over the year, a very large dung beetle population will start to develop that will follow the herd. Those dung beetles, you know, some of them are bearing dung ten foot deep. So there's all these holes, you know, Swiss cheese going deep into the sand. Um, now that's important later on. So now the whole carpet is a year without rain. Without this is a year rain. without worst rain. Case, yeah. Worst case, um, yeah. So while the dung is wet, the dung beetles are burying it, but you know, uh, but uh, you know, enough is is staying on top of the carpet. Now we wait. Now the the herd's keeping on going forward. Now we've got one hundred and fifty thousand acres of basically. It's got like a thick one-inch paper, you know, on top of it. 
but underneath it's completely churned up and the sand and the dung is mixed and then below it are the channels going down where the dung beetles buried their their uh, their balls those larvae hatched out crawled to the surface and they flew off to go and join the herd again but the tunnel remains so now the first rain comes and let's say it's only half an inch traditionally that half inch of rain would have fallen and evaporated within 30 minutes 84% of precipitation that falls within a, de a desert evaporates within 30 minutes of falling. Psh, steam, gone. But now, instead, that rain falls and it's like it fell onto a sponge. So you get a dry sponge in your kitchen and just turn the faucet on or the tap on and see what happens. It goes into the sponge, right? The biological carpet is the sponge. Now, five days later, 10 days later, the next bit of rain comes and we get another half inch. So now, not only did the sponge hold the water so that the seeds that are in the biological carpet can expand and germinate, but now if there's any excess water beyond what would be held in that carpet, it goes through and it goes down those dung beetle channels. So now it's really going in. Now those seeds, it's like a chia pet. So now the fungus, they take off and they do their thing. And the fungi go and tap on any of the seeds in the dung or in the sand. And when the, tongue, the, the fungus taps on the carapace of the seed, it says, hey, time to wake up, time to germinate. So there's moisture, a fungal you know, sends an electronic message to the seed, it tells it it's time to germinate. So about 10 days later, you, know, you have this carpet of fungus germinating. Um, you know, um, uh, the fruit body of the fungus happens, but you would also have like a chia pet of, of green forage, you know, start to germinate and grow. Now, because that water went down the, the dung beetle channels and because that water was stored and didn't, you know, 84% didn't evaporate, it got held. Now those plants have moisture to grow for longer. But whatever water did just go beyond the sponge and kept going down, now those plant roots have an open channel to follow the water down quickly and without much resistance. So now you're getting a deep root in the desert. Um, and so that three and a half inches becomes what we call effective rainfall. Basically, you know, the majority of it gets to be used by the plants. Well, now, as soon as the plants have started growing up with this additional moisture that they've got, well, now they start shading the ground even more. Now the desert's cool because the ground is really being cooled now. Well, now you don't have the hot air going up the mountains causing the evaporation of the clouds that are trying to come in from the ocean. So now the clouds that used to hit the mountain range and get turned around and go back to the Pacific or back to Baja, now the clouds can make it over the mountain range. Well, now the big water cycle can get going. So now even more rain falls. Well, now once the, even more rain is falling, now the little micro water cycle can get going, which is in the afternoon, the bit of evaporation from evapotranspiration creates its own cloud mass. So between the two mountain ranges, so now you've got the micro water cycle working, you've got the little work water cycle working, and you've got the, 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 the regular big water cycle working. 
And that was all because you got enough land cool enough that it could affect the weather pattern. Now, if we did it below 150,000 acres, we wouldn't get those additional carry-on benefits. So now and we've what? grown all this and what, forage. What, what happens? Yeah, what happens with all that forage? Okay. Are you coming back so, to the herd? Uh, no, no, no. The herd's still going on. Now we've grown all this forage. Now let's say our three months of wet weather, because it's a brittle environment, our three-month wet season is over. What happens to the forage? It dies and it dries up. So now it's standing dry matter. Well, standing dry matter in a desert, what does it do at night? It captures dew. Dew point gets reached at about 5 in the morning, 4 or 5 in the morning. So any moisture that was in the air now gets captured by the leaves because dew point happens and on the bottom side the leaf comes and it comes down. So now that additional moisture is also going in and because there's a biological carpet there, the fungi, there's, there's fungi that uh, have hyphae on them and uh, uh, we've actually dug up um, grass in the desert where below the sun's heat we found little balls of water um, held and stored by fungi. So now the fungi can trap the overnight dew. So that's additional, that's the micro water cycle continuing to function months after the last rain. Then the biological carpet herd is still going forward. It's now doing another 150,000 acres higher up the valley. Now, within a year or so, we have to now, all that 150,000 acres, we have to now have a breeding herd cycle that carbon before the next year's growing season. So all that standing carbon now has to be grazed and or trampled flat on the ground. When it's grazed or trampled and flat on the ground, then instead of it going gray and oxidizing or chemical oxidization or burning, it gets trampled flat on the ground. The fungi can break it down and we've basically created the seed bank because remember all those dry plants went to seed and if one plant goes up it drops 500 to 1500 seeds each so now we have a massive seed bank that now goes in and the grazing herd or the breeding herd tramples those seeds into the ground cycles that carbon grow their own calves so we have a biological carpet herd that's the meat industry and we have the breeding herd that every seven years doubles in size. And we've been managing holistically for over 30 years. We have not had a single breeding herd that's ever kept up with the speed of the regeneration of the land. You know, so now, now that's a whole nother industry. Now you've got 150,000 acres of new ranch land for families to manage ranch, maintain herds on. Get out of the cities, you've got no dust, you've got a normal functioning ecosystem. Um, and uh, and then the grazing gets planned, you know, um, based on, you know, we've got to cycle this carbon before the next growing season. And then in the growing season, how do we manage the animals so that we grow the maximum amount of forage the next year? So then it comes into all the holistic planned grazing stuff. Um, and that's the industry everyone already understands. So that's where the two marry up.
And then if you look at it from like an entrepreneurial or investor perspective, I like to ask the question, what should investors remember? But I will get to that uh, in a second. But what is the node? Like in this case, the node or the, the, the Kickstarter in or the lever in the system to restore, to kickstart the restoration, regeneration um, of this ecosystem is the, the ruminant, the cow, plus the chickens, well-managed, etc. But what is the, the node to unlock this, um, this project from an investor point of view or from a money point of view? Is it the schools in Los Angeles that, I don't know, do a purchase agreement for the meat? Is it like, what's the, the entry? What's the node that unlocks this from a more, um, uh, from a money perspective? No, no, you just said it. We're, we're uh, the guy who currently has to supply LA with all their grass-finished meat by law, uh, brings his meat in from Australia, um, uh, and uh, he's. Uh, but his contract, he's meant to su- uh, source meat locally. So as soon as we're up and running, we've got that contract. And that, that begins the process. You know, everyone wants to see, well, how's it going to work? So you're buying an animal in for $800 to $1,000. You're keeping it, feeding it. At some point, you retail it. And an animal retails for about $8,000. Now, obviously, everyone's got their finger on the pie, and they're all trying to make their bit of money. But there's enough money in that that, you know, the investor gets his, his money back. That's the one thing. The second thing is to begin with, we need to do it on private land. But the vast majority of land in the Western United States that's desert is federally owned or state owned. So while I would like to say that there's a a, a profit thing from land going from $2,000 an acre up to ten dollars or $30,000 an acre because you've created cr- uh, good ranching land with deer and turkey and, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Unless the government goes back to its old policy of selling Western rangelands to people, um, which is by the Constitution they're meant to do, but uh, you know they've all kind of held on to federal lands. Um, but you know there's, there was the Homestead Act and all of that. So unless that happens, the government would have to pay for ecosystem services. I'm not sure the government wants to pay um, for ecosystems services, but they would have to. Um, and then, uh, so it's it's a meat model in the beginning, and then because it would mostly be done on you know federal land, um, who owns the uh, the carbon rights for carbon sequestration? That would have to be nutted out. But if you throw in a billion dollars at a project, it seems to get people's attention. You know, suddenly they can negotiate how the pie is going to be squabbled over and, 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 and divided. But the bottom line is, if you are a wealthy investor, this is the only project you should be investing in. If you have children, plan on having grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Because if we don't stop Remember, in America, we've got 81 million acres of pure desert. We've got 200 million acres at risk of turning into desert. So, you know, and that would only, you know, so we have no option. Population's going to go up. We've got to increase the area and we can't, you know, we can't hope that conventional agriculture will save us. It's what's turning the 200 million acres into desert. 
So that's not a winning solution. That 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 gang, you know, you see in California them plowing up all the orchards and and just mulching them and and running out of water. And you know, this is all the water cycle. You know, if you have that bare soil between rows, you're going to have you know, evaporation. If you don't have healthy soils, if you don't understand that soil is a living organism, and you treat it like a you know, I think someone described it well. They said, look, we're doing hydroponics. Um, and we just plant the animals in sand, but it's we're running a hydroponic operation. We just need the sand to hold the plants upright. You know, and that's basically what they're doing. Um, not understanding that soil is a living, breathing organism. Um, you know, uh, with with immense complexity. So we have to do it for our grandchildren's uh, future. Uh, yeah, that's the bottom line. Investors just have to do it. Um, you know, if you're worth a billion dollars, say, okay, I'll put 30% towards this. But you have to do something. Um, but as a business model, it makes money in its own right, just on the meat, um, you know, a pr a profitability. And Paul Engler is a friend of mine. He's the one who owns Cactus Feeders. And, and he's got his own holistically managed ranch with 6,000 animals. But he's got 500,000 cattle in his feedlot. And he said, yeah, many years ago, when I asked him for support, he said, he just smiled at me and he said, Roger, you go ahead and do what you're going to do. And he said, the day that what you're doing is more profitable than what I'm doing, he said, I'll happily go out of business. He said, but as long as I'm making money, I'd be silly to stop what I'm doing. And I think Paul, you know, was worth about $50 billion. I mean, he's worth an awful lot. And that's from the meat business. So, yeah, the meat business is a profitable business and grass-finished organic meat is more profitable than feedlot meat that's corn-fed. Um, so why, it's why a is Paul not, not investing yet? Yeah, he's pretty old. He and my dad are the same age. And like I said, he's got his own 6,000 cattle managing holistically. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, no, I, he, he and I, I mean, he stayed with me for two weeks in Africa and uh, and he was like, oh, imagine, you know, if I was here, I'd turn the Zambezi, I'd have, you know, and I was like, no, Paul. <laughs> but um, just plugged into into that um, that conventional agricultural um, um, Maybe mindset. Maybe children. Yeah. Uh, Paul Engler Jr. has said the same thing, you know, that, uh, as you know, they've got to keep the business going because it's so profitable. Um, uh, uh, how did he describe it to me? He said, um, he said to me, he said, how much profit do you think the average beef has made since the 1960s? And uh, I knew it was worth 50 billion. So I was trying to calculate and he just stopped me in my tracks. And uh, he said a quarter of a penny per beef. And I was like, no, Paul, don't bullshit me. There's no way it can be a quarter of a penny per beef and you're worth 50 billion with 500,000. You know, he said, no. He said, the beef doesn't make more money. He said, I make money convincing farmers to turn healthy yellow fat into unhealthy white fat and they pay me $60 per head per month for the honor of doing that. That's also a business model. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah so um, you know, you, you, and how has this been landing with like investors? Because from one part, I think they can wrap their head around. Of course, there's there's discussion on the role of ruminants and there's a lot of education needed, let's say, on, on the positive of that. But I think that there's a lot out there. People people can educate themselves and can visit and, and smell and taste, etc. Um, so there's this sort of 
relatively straightforward business case on the meat, but then there's this gigantic piece on um, literally rain weather patterns changing. Like, how is that that sort sort of duality landing with investors, or you well, just don't so, tell them the second part? No, no, investors don't care about the second part. Um, you know that that's a what's good for humanity part. That that's something a politician would get excited about. That's someone. Yeah, you know, bureaucrat would get excited about. Yeah, you know, that's one of the positive unintended consequences. But but that's why I said if you if you care about your grandchildren, I mean the droughts in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas are because the water doesn't come over from California because it's too hot crossing the Imperial Valley. You know, and and you can't you can't say anything because you come across like a bullshit artist. Um, so I kind of keep it toned down on that point, but you know, as you said, Alpha Lowe's interviewed me, et cetera, et cetera. So the people in the water industry, you know, who study this for a living, they've confirmed, you know, what you know I've known for a long time that, yeah, if you do that, it'll have this carry-on effect. So those will be positive unintended consequences, but they're vital positive unintended consequences. So someone who's investing his money in or his family money or his family officer's money or the pension fund just needs to know that they will get a return on the investment. But I need to be um, you know, honest here. You actually won't get a dividend paid. Um, there, there's a word in the investment world for it. Basically, you know, Elon Musk is the master of this. If you buy a share, the share will go up in value, but we'll never pay a dividend because we've got to keep increasing. So if we're doing 150,000 acres, then we've got to go up to 300,000 acres, then we've got to go up to 600, then nine, yeah, we've got 81 million acres. So I've only done my business development plans for 20 years, then I'm tapping out, then I retire. But we can do 20 million acres before I get old. And that's the plan. So remember I said there's the feedlot you know, model, so that pays for itself. Once we're up and running, it actually pays for itself and we just keep expanding. And then the grazing herd model, that comes behind a bit slower, but it's exponential growth. And, and, and we can do sheep and goats with the cattle on that. Um, and a cattle herd doubles in size every seven years. Sheep and goats can have twins twice a year. That's best case scenario. But let's just say it's twins once a year. You can see how exponentially within, uh, within a much shorter time frame, they're going uh, exponential. Hence, in the Bible, they always had twice as many sheep and goats as cattle. Um, and so, you know, We've got to produce, we're already, there are already a billion hungry humans on the planet. And a human diet needs 200 grams of protein and animal fats per day. Um, so we already need, you know, we're already behind the eight ball. So we already need massive more production of, of animal protein. So there's a guaranteed market because we're already a billion animals behind. But over the next 20 years, we will add between one and two billion additional humans to the planet. So at the same time we're growing this desert herd to feed people, people are breeding up faster than we can do it. So there's a, there's a, in business, there's a thing called the law of supply and demand. 
there's going to be way more demand than the supply. But the consequences of, of into consideration the the lab grown meat people and and their supply demand. No, I'm joking, but in their let's say well, no, calculations, they, I mean, yeah, even but, that is a drop in the ocean. So, but this if is where their wrong. calculations are wrong. They know that they're going to need increased glucose. But we know conventional agricultural fields are becoming less and less productive. So where's their glucose going to come from if their fields are dying from all the poison and chemicals? Uh, I, I know I always ask the input question and I never get a, a satisfactory answer. Um, but it doesn't keep the, the techno optimists, let's say, from... Uh, from being optimistic about technology. I want to be conscious of your time as well and, and wrap this up. It's been an absolute pleasure. I want to thank you so much for um, bringing the optimism and bringing the enthusiasm and um, the focus to, to not only this specific region, but in, in, like in the worst of the worst of the worst, showing what is possible um, is, is an absolute... It's, it's also the 5% of... of um, um, in this case, the second generation, but still the 5% of risk takers, uh, I would say entrepreneurs definitely fit in that. And now we only need the 5% of investors that um, dare to take a risk as well. So thank you so much for coming here uh, very early morning for you, I know. Um, and uh, instead of going fishing, um, help us with uh, sharing this, uh, this project with, with the world. So thank you so much for coming on here, for sharing, and of course, for the work you do. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you liked this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.